Man's greatest problem is not brown age spots, it's death. Uh, Sartre, the French existentialist, said that death is such a terrible thing to consider that uh, so long as we think about death in the third person, so long as it's someone else dying, it's not so bad, but when we start to consider death in the first person, that I'm the one who's going to die, it becomes the ultimate nightmare. And biologically, death is inexplicable. Uh, we, we really don't know why people die. Um, I, I've read that every cell in the body is replaced, what, every seven years or so? Maybe not every cell, but a lot of the cells in the body are replaced on a continuing basis. But after 70 or 80 years of cells being replaced, that process sort of comes to an end. And, and we die. Um, medicine can't explain death. Science can't explain death. But we die. 2,000 years ago, there was a man who said, I can deal with the problem of death. Not just for myself, but for you. And to prove that I can deal with the problem of death, three days after I'm put to death, I'm going to leave the grave. Now, folks... If there is ever a reason for falling at the feet of another and crying, my Lord and my God, that's the reason. And I want tonight to talk about the one who I believe left the grave, and that's Jesus Christ. It's, it's so uh, wonderful to be with this crowd of people tonight. I've got a great audience here. And um, in ancient Greek mythology, in their war with the gods, the Titans would renew their strength by drawing near to the earth and touching it and Hopefully, as we touch the Word of God tonight, our strength will be renewed as well. Last night, I talked about the beliefs of unbelievers, that they have no basis for their belief. Their belief is a leap in the dark. But I don't believe my belief, my faith, is in that category. I believe there is a basis for my faith, and I want to talk about that tonight. And to talk about my faith, I just want to talk about Jesus Christ. Um, there is either a supernatural being or there isn't. I believe all of logic and reason points to the fact that there is. But what supernatural being, which supernatural being are we to believe in? Uh, Osiris? Zeus? The Olympian gods? Just which god, Allah, which god are we to believe in? Well, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he is God. I believe he is Emmanuel, God with us. And this evening and in the morning, I'll try to lay out in a logical way why I believe that Jesus is God, which leads to this proposition. Here's where I start. If Jesus is God, then God is. I mean, you just can't escape the logic of that. If then reasoning is the simplest form of reasoning in which we engage. If the antecedent, if the if is true, then the then, the consequent, automatically follows. If Jesus is God, most certainly, no getting around it, God is. Now, the, the problem is the antecedent, the if clause. If Jesus is God, then God is, but how do we know that Jesus is God? Now, in the Gospels... Christ claimed to be God. 
I mean, that is the claim he made. John 8, 58, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. The Jews immediately knew what he was talking about. He was talking about how God revealed himself to Moses back there at the burning bush, where God revealed himself as the I am, the eternal existent one, and that's what Christ was claiming to be, and the Jews took up stones to stoning because by saying, I am, now if he had said before Abraham was, I was, they would have thought he was a crackpot and would probably have left him alone. That had been the end of it. But when he said before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming the name of God. He was claiming the character, the essence of God in that name. Turn to John chapter 10. Look at verses 32 and 33. John 10. The Jews understood exactly what Christ was claiming. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you for my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Christ didn't say, no, you misunderstood me. He didn't say that. That's exactly what he was claiming, and the Jews were exactly right in understanding that that's what he was claiming. Now, how do you go about proving that you're God? Lots of people have claimed to be God. How do you go about proving that you're God? Well, Look at verses 37 and 38 of John 10. Christ doesn't leave us in any doubt about that. Verse 38. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in you. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Now, just as a sidelight, that's a little bit different from the way modern miracle workers are. I've talked to a number of people who claim the ability to work miracles. And the best proof of the ability to work miracle is to work a miracle. I've challenged many to work a miracle. No one has ever worked a miracle in my presence. They don't give me a miracle, they give me an argument. They argue with me that they can work a miracle... And I challenge them to work a miracle, and they say something like, well, if you don't believe I can do it, that's just too bad. You're going to have to take my word for it. Christ said, if I can't produce the works, don't believe me. They say, if I can't produce the works, believe me anyway. But Christ says, if I can do the works that my Father gave me to do, even if you don't take my word for who I say I am, Believe me on the basis of what I'm doing. Christ claimed that he was doing things that are explainable, explicable, only on the basis that he is God. Now, what kind of works does it take to prove that somebody is God? We'll turn to Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about the prototypical faith of Abraham. And uh, down around verse 17, he's going to tell us about the God that Abraham had faith in. Romans 4, 17, for as it is written, 
I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, which God, Paul, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Those are the two signs, the two chief signs of deity. Quickening the dead, that's the King James word. Giving life to the dead. And calling things that are not as though they are. I I believe that's a reference to prophecy. You know, prophecy is such a great evidence of deity. Now, scientists can predict the next solar eclipse. They, They can predict when the tides, high tide, low tide. They can predict the next time Halley's Comet's going to appear in the sky. They can predict all kinds of astral phenomena based on the regularity of the nature they study. What makes prophecy valuable is that it's based and occurs despite the irregularity of human nature. Now, nature may be regular, and because of that, you can make accurate predictions based on it. The rising of the sun, the setting of the moon. But human nature is all over the board. And when you can tell what humans are going to do long before they've done it and nail it, now that's something. When you can name the name of the emperor of the East 200 years before he is born and tell the world that Cyrus is going to be my anointed one, now that's doing something. If you want to take a shot at naming the American president 200 years from now, go ahead. You know, we'll not be around to to check it, but you can go ahead and do it. So prophecy is of great value. But but what I'm primarily, primarily going to talk about tonight and in the morning is the resurrection. Uh, bringing the dead to life. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Look what Peter says about the value, the evidential, apologetic value of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Who through him, he's talking about Jesus, through Jesus we believe in God who raised him from the dead. Jesus is the chief argument for God. He's the chief argument because he was raised from the dead. So we're going to be talking about the proof for the existence of God based upon Jesus Christ. And often there's someone who says, you can't prove that God exists. I mean, that's, that's a common comeback. You can't prove that God exists. But that statement is fundamentally ambiguous. It depends on what you mean by proof. Um, Back in the 1930s, there were a group of philosophers in Vienna. They were known as the Vienna Circle. And they talked about the types of statements, propositions, truth claims it's possible for an individual to make. And what they came up with is that there are three types of statements that people can make. And here's what they are. The first one they called, and this is their term, analytical statements, which are statements of mathematics or pure logic. Analytical statements carry 100% certainty with them. Two plus two equals four. If you understand the symbol for two and the symbol for plus and the symbol for equals and the symbol for four, if you understand all that, it's 100% certain that two plus two equals four. All bachelors are men. 
definitionally, that is 100% true. But there's very few things we know in life on the basis of mathematical equations. The second type of statement that a person can make, they call the synthetic statement, but it's, it's the empirical statements. Empirical statements are statements we make based upon the knowledge acquired through our five senses. Hearing, seeing, taste, touch, smell, uh, sight. You know, what we learn through the senses is empirical. Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are statements. That's knowledge, not deduced through a mathematical equation or arithmetic problem. That's knowledge deduced by seeing at what temperature water freezes, by going back and look at the, looking at the evidence for uh, where Lincoln was shot. That's empirical knowledge. Empirical knowledge is always just probable. It never rises to the level of certainty. If you've ever been on a jury and someone's being tried, been accused of some crime, you're not asked to decide on the basis of certainty. You're asked to decide on the basis of probability. Proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not 100%, but it's extremely high. That's the, most of what we know. We know empirically. We only know who we are empirically. I mean, I, I've been told there are two people who were my mother and father... And uh, I was born in Champaign. For all I know, I was left in a basket on the doorstep. But when I look at all of the evidence, you know, there, there's a birth certificate in Champaign County Courthouse. Uh, there are pictures. Uh, there are people who say, I knew your folks. Yeah, you, they're your parents. Based on all the evidence, I think it's very highly probable that I am Kenny Chumley, who I've always believed myself to me. But, but I don't have absolute certainty of that. The third type of statement the Vienna Circle, and by the way, they call this the Verifiability Criterion of Meeting. That was the fancy title they gave it. The third type of statement they called nonsensical, and they don't mean it's nonsense. They just mean it's a statement that cannot be proven mathematically or empirically. A thousand angels can dance on the head of a pen. That may be true, but how would you ever prove it? Now, when someone says you can't prove that God exists, do they mean I can't prove mathematically that he exists? Well, they're right. I can't. They can't prove who they are mathematically. But I believe I can pull together empirical proof that when you add it all up, the evidence is simply overwhelming. Uh, many years ago, I went down to Dad's. Uh, we lived out in the farm. I'd build a house out in the farm. And any time I needed to mow, I borrowed Dad's Sears riding lawnmower. And so I go down there one day to borrow the lawnmower, and it was about out of gas, and there was a quart jar, or a gallon jar, actually, with what I thought was gas in it. And I, I just poured it in the gas tank, took off down to my house. About halfway through the mowing, that thing started sputtering, backfiring, and, and finally it just stopped. And my thought was Dad had bought a, a lemon you know, for a riding lawnmower. Well, the problem wasn't dad or the lawnmower. The problem was the operator 
who had poured kerosene in the gas tank instead of gasoline. Now, Sears riding lawnmowers run fine on gas, but they don't run at all on kerosene. And for someone to say that Sears riding lawnmower is no good because it doesn't run on kerosene, that's not the way we think. And when someone says you can't prove the existence of God, you ask them, what do you mean by proof? The argument for God is based on empirical evidence, and that's what we're going to talk about. And tonight, I want to talk about the first stage in the argument. Tomorrow, I'll talk about the concluding stage. But the first thing we have to decide is whether or not the documents on which our belief is based, on which our knowledge of Jesus is based, are these documents reliable? A number of years ago, there were some documents that turned up that purported to be the diary of Hitler. It had new information that historians had never come across before. Well, they started studying those documents, and what they concluded is that they were frauds. Is this book a fraud? Can we believe it? Can we trust it? Virtually all of our knowledge of Christ depends on the first four books in this book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Hebrews has some things. There's some other statements in the epistles that, that apply to the life of Christ. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is where, all, where almost all of it comes from. Can we trust this book? Now, now don't miss this. We do not start with the assumption that this book is inspired, therefore everything it says is true. That's not where we start. We start, and, and that's the way the atheists try to portray us, that we're arguing in a circle. How do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Because the Bible says so. That's what they claim we are arguing. No, that's not what I claim. I claim that this book should be treated like any other document from history, from antiquity. Which means we're going to examine it using the same criteria, the same tests, that are used to examine any ancient document from antiquity, to see if this book can pass the test. If it passed the test, that doesn't mean it's inspired. That means it's historically reliable. And if it's historically reliable, we go to it, that's what we'll do in the morning, to see what this historically reliable book says, to see if based on what it says, we can reach any kind of conclusion about Jesus of Nazareth. Someone says, well, you can't prove to me that uh, the Bible is reliable by making me read the Bible. Well, now that's silly. I mean, when someone is accused of, of, of being a fraud... When someone's accused of a crime, are they not allowed to speak in their own defense? I mean, that's like saying, you can't make me buy a Buick by making me drive a Buick. If a man claims there's oil on his property, how do you test the claim? Not by drilling on his neighbor's property. You drill in the vicinity of the claim. And this book claims to be historically reliable primary source documents of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, that's the claim we're going to test. Now, 
What test do historians use to determine the veracity, the credibility, the reliability of an ancient document? Well, Chauncey Saunders, uh, who was an Air Force historian at one point, wrote a book entitled An Introduction to Research in English Literary History. He said, the evidence upon which we must rely in attempting to solve problems of authenticity and attribution may be classified as external, internal, and bibliographical. Now, other uh, experts in the area may add another category or two, but they all pretty much come down to these three. So I'm going to tell you what these three tests are, and we're going to, to apply each of these tests to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see if we can... Uh, make any kind of determination about the historical credibility of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first test is the bibliographical. It asks the question, are the Gospels faithful reproductions of the original? Did you know that historians don't believe you need the original, which they call the autographed document, in order to determine what the document says? Did you know no one today has ever seen a single original Shakespeare play? C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis. When he was writing his books and his articles and everything, his father would take them and have them bound into a book. And for some reason, his father had all of those original documents from his son destroyed. There's not a single surviving manuscript of C.S. Lewis of the great books that he wrote today. There's not a single surviving original autograph manuscript of any of the Greek Roman historians that we read and study in school and take tests on and get graded on. What we have are copies of what they wrote. And historians believe, based on the copies... An evaluation can be made and a determination made about the value of the book. And there are three tests that historians look at. What's the time interval between when the book was originally written and the earliest copy we have? How many copies are there? A manuscript is a copy in the same language as which the original was written. A version, King James Version, New American Standard Version, is a translation into another language. How many copies of manuscripts are there, and do the manuscripts all agree? Now, in regard to the time interval, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who, had, before he died was the principal librarian of the British Museum, who was as knowledgeable as anybody in this field of the number of manuscripts, the time interval, etc. He said that in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as in that of the New Testament. Now what that means is if the Gospels... The New Testament was written, let's say, in the middle to late first century. The earliest copies that have been dated 
go back, some scholars believe, to within 5 to 25 years of the writing of the documents. What may be the oldest document is in the Maudlin Library, the Maudlin Papyrus, it's in Oxford, that has been dated maybe to the end of the first century. Uh, the John Ryland's papyri, which have some scraps of the Gospel of John on them, have been dated to within 40 years or so of the end of the apostolic writings. The great Unschiel manuscripts, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, have been dated to within 300 years of the end of the writing of the New Testament. You say, that sounds like an awful long, long time, 300 years. Well, let me give you some comparison. Caesar's Gallic Wars. Has anybody here ever read about Caesar's campaign in France? Caesar's Gallic Wars? The earliest copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars is 900 years after Julius Caesar wrote it. What about Herodotus, the father of history? Just about everything we know about the Greek-Persian Wars, uh, the, the, uh, the Spartans, the 300 at Thermopylae, Salamis, the Battle of Salamis, everything we know about uh, Artaxerxes, or, 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 yeah, Artaxerxes and Xerxes from Herodotus, the earliest known manuscript, 1,300 years after Herodotus wrote. Thucydides, the historian of the Peloponnesian War, 1,300 years. Nobody doubts the veracity of Herodotus. Nobody doubts the veracity of Thucydides. The New Testament, 540, even 300 years. Nothing else comes close. No other document from antiquity has, like Kenyon said, a shorter time interval between the original and the earliest extant manuscript. What about the number of manuscripts? Caesar's Gallic Wars, maybe 10. Herodotus, Thucydides, I think eight or both. A couple of years ago, I wrote the secretary of the New Testament Institute for Manuscripts. I forget where it is in Germany. I emailed him. I didn't write him a letter. Asking him how many Greek manuscripts have now been cataloged. I got an email back from him. I forget the exact number, well over 5,000. Herodotus, Herodotus 8, Thucydides 8, New Testament, 5,000 plus. And the third question, do they agree? I mean, in those 5,000, do some of them say Jesus was born in Jerusalem, others he was born in Bethlehem, others he was born in Nazareth? Do they all agree on the principle uh, claims that are made. James D. Bales cited um, some studies that had been done into the variations in the manuscripts. And, and Hort, H-O-R-T, one of the great 19th century scholars on the manuscripts, said this. He said... All of the substantial variations in these manuscripts, none of which affect anybody's salvation, by the way, but all of the substantial variations amount to no more than one one-thousandth of the text. 
Which means if you've got a New Testament that has 500 pages in it, you can put every substantial variation among those 5,000 manuscripts on half of one page. Now, that's not spit on the griddle. I mean, in terms of variations that exist in ancient manuscripts, that is nothing. There is no document from antiquity that has greater bibliographical attestation than your New Testament. Not one. Well, the next uh, test is the internal test, which asks, do the Gospels disqualify themselves by contradictions or factual inconsistencies within the manuscripts? Now, this was the third, the, the, the internal consistency. This is an expansion of the one I was just talking about. You know, the Gospels are primary source documents. What's a primary source document? Has anybody done much reading on the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage? There were three Punic Wars. The historian who recorded all of them was Polybius. With the first Punic War, by the time he wrote the history of it, the only way he could acquire information about it was by going to written records that had been made during the time of the war. There were monuments he went out and visited, and based on the surviving written records, the monuments, he wrote about the first Punic War. The word Punic, by the way, is what the Romans called the Phoenicians. The Carthaginians were Phoenicians from Tyre, Sidon, that area, and Punic was the Latin term for Phoenician. So the first Punic War based on written documents. Nobody doubts the veracity of what Polybius wrote. Second Punic War, there were still veterans of the war alive when Polybius wrote it, so he interviewed eyewitnesses, people who had been in the fighting. And he wrote the Second Punic War based on the testimony of the veterans, like the World War II veterans, almost gone. You can still find a few of them. Uh, we were talking at dinner. There's a guy just a few miles from me who is one of the few four or five remaining survivors of the USS Indianapolis. I need to go see him. He could tell me about the sinking of the Indianapolis. He's a vet. And that's how Polybius wrote the Second Punic War. The Third Punic War, he went on campaign with Africanus Serapio. He was there in North Africa. He wrote from an eyewitness perspective. Now turn to Luke chapter 1. Look what Luke says in the first four verses in the uh, preface to his gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you have been instructed." Now, Luke doesn't hesitate to talk about certainty, does he? You can be certain of what I've written. What did Luke write? He wrote what eyewitnesses told him, just like Polybius did with the Second Punic War. When he wrote the book of Acts, he often wrote from a first-person eyewitness perspective. Luke takes a back seat to no historian in telling us how he acquired his material. And when you write an account of a vet, the, the, uh, 
assistant janitor at the little country grade school I went to growing up, Mr. Kester, quiet, unassuming man. His son was in my class. A few years ago, the family got in touch with me and asked, would I help get his memoirs that he had written down into book form? When Mr. Kester was 16 years old, he joined the Marine Corps. When Mr. Kester was 17 years old, he landed on Iwo Jima and was there the entire battle. And when they finally, at the end of the battle, pulled him off Iwo Jima, he didn't have enough points to go home. They shipped him with the 5th Marines up to Japan. He said one day they put him on a train. They were on the west side of Japan. They trained him over to the east side of Japan. And all of a sudden, they were in an area where everything was just blasted and there was nothing but dirt. Everything was brown. They go around a mountain. Everything is green. He's at Nagasaki. Now, there aren't too many people. He's still alive. He lives uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee. Almost 90 now. Aren't too many men around who were on Iwo Jima and then at Nagasaki. I wrote a newspaper article about, that's a primary source document. I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up in some history books somewhere along the way. Well, that's Luke. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. Mark was a companion of an eyewitness. Peter. And what they wrote is primary source documentation. Now, are there any contradictions between what they wrote? Let me tell you something about a contradiction. Something is only a contradiction if there is no way to reconcile two statements that seem to be at odds with each other. If there is an explanation that accounts for all of the data, there is no contradiction. And it doesn't matter whether we like the explanation or not. If it accounts and makes sense of all of the data, no contradiction. Now, unbelievers, typically, this is where they pitch their tent when they try to attack the Bible, saying that there are so many contradictions and inconsistencies, nobody can trust the Gospels. Here's an example of what they're talking about. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. Look at verse 29. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. Matthew writes, as they departed from Jericho. And he goes on to talk about Christ seeing some blind men. As they departed from Jericho. Now turn to Luke 18. Keep your finger in Matthew 20. Turn to Luke 18. Look at verse 35. This is Luke's account of the same incident. It came to pass that as he was coming near Jericho, Matthew says they had left Jericho. Luke says they hadn't gotten there yet. And the unbeliever says, you see, there's an example of what I'm talking about when I say that you can't trust your Bible. That's what the unbeliever said. Now, is there any explanation that accounts for all of the data that helps us understand what appears to be a contradiction? Well, the answer is there is. Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you that the alleged contradictions of the Bible have been 
known for centuries. They have been explained and answered for centuries. Unbelievers just don't want to look at the explanation. They've got a hardened heart that's not going to accept anything. But there are explanations for all of them. Here's the best explanation, I think, for the apparent discrepancy between Matthew and Luke. In the time of Jesus, there were two Jerichos. There was the old Canaanite site that was just ruins, that was still known as Jericho. And about a mile south or so, Herod had built a resort city, a little Riviera-type city there, that was also called Jericho. Christ has uh, been coming down on the east side of the Jordan. They've crossed over for the Passover. The first site they came to was the old Jericho. They leave that site. Before they get to the new Jericho, somewhere in between is, are, are Bartimaeus and his friend. That explains it. That makes perfect sense. And there's no way someone can say, Matthew, you know, the Jew talks about Old Testament Jericho. Luke, the, uh, the Gentile, talks about the, uh, the Greek, Roman Greek city that Herod had built. There's no contradiction there. And no one has ever made any charge. It's one thing to charge that there's a contradiction. It's another thing to make it stick. No one's ever made any variation in the Gospels stick. Well, the third test is the external. Does any collateral proof exist to corroborate the Gospels? Within just a few years of the life of Christ, say within 100 years of the life of Christ, about 150 details from the Gospels were mentioned by extra-biblical sources. Tacitus. He had the police report talking about how Christus, Christ, had been put to death by Pontius Pilate. Suetonius, you know, the guy who wrote the lives of the twelve Caesars, talks about the disturbances in Rome that were carried out, he says, at the instigation of Crestus, a variant spelling of Christ. Thalus, a Samaritan historian. Was try, he, we, we know about Thalus because of Julius Africanus writing in the 4th century. Thalus was trying to explain the three hours of darkness that preceded the death of Christ. And he explained it on the basis of an eclipse. Julius Africanus said, no way, because the Passover occurred at the full moon. When the moon's on the opposite side of the earth from the sun, to have an eclipse, the moon's got to be between the earth and the sun. So, Julius Africanus explained, answered that charge of Thalus uh, 1,700 years ago. And just on and on, uh, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, talks about many incidents. He talks about John the Baptist. He talks about the death of John the Baptist. Because of Josephus, we know where John died. And so there is enormous corroborating testimony. A few years ago, they were, un they were doing some digging. Back in 1967, I believe, they were doing some, uh, 
some uh, renovating in Jerusalem. They were putting in a water park, and they uncovered some ossuaries, bone boxes. And in one of these ossuaries that had on it the name uh, Johannan Bar-Joseph, I forget the name, but he was called Johannan, oh no, Johannan Hagalgo. I'm I'm butchering that name, I know. I just call him Yo, Johannan. For the first time, they found someone who had been put to death by crucifixion. There was a nail through both of his ankles. His legs were together, he was on his side, and through both of his ankles there was a nail. There were bits of wood on the nail. They examined it. It was olive wood. His legs had been broken. Crucifragium is what they called it, to hasten death when one had been crucified. And that's corroborating testimony of how the Romans would get someone to die more quickly who'd been crucified. So there is corroborating testimony everywhere you turn. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, consisting of the Mishnah and the Gemara, the the traditions of the elders with the commentaries on the traditions, tell us many details about the life of Christ. Now, the upshot of all this, and this is where we'll stop this evening, is that there has never been a single extra-biblical finding that has ever disproven a single biblical statement. And that is after years of scrutiny, years where unbelievers have searched for anything they can latch on to to call in question the accuracy of the New Testament documents. They cannot do so on the basis of bibliographical, internal, or external considerations after the Bible has been examined more closely, more carefully than any other ancient document, it stands unimpeached as a reliable, credible, primary source documents for the life and teachings of Jesus. And like Wilbur Smith said in his book, The Supernaturalness of Christ, if this is an historically accurate, reliable book, then what we do is to go to it to see what it says about Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what we'll do in the morning, if you'll be able to get back here at 9 o'clock in the morning. So, I I, I was setting the table tonight for what we'll talk about tomorrow morning. The evidence that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write to prove that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then God exists. That's the end of the discussion as far as the existence of God. And thank you so much for your kind attention this evening. If you have any questions about anything I say, uh, please uh, grab me and be happy to talk with you further about this. But if you're here tonight convinced in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you're willing to confess that, and to give your life in obedience to him, including being baptized for the remission of sins, now's a good time to act on that conviction. And we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.